God, as we turn to the preaching of your word, I ask that you will help me this morning not to preach in error. I pray that your word will be transparent, that you will plant the truth of your word deep in our hearts, that we will see you in all your glory, that we will see the need for Christ, that we will latch on to him and not let go, that you will hold us and we'll see that really it is not us. But it's you who has brought us to yourself, and you are the strength. You are the one that keeps us safe and provides the refuge. Lord, I pray that you'll do that for Pastor Roy as he leads uh, the the church of Pillar Church 29 Palms. I pray that uh, that new fellowship will continue to reach out to the community of 29 Palms and the Marines there at the base. Father, pray that you will strengthen that body and that they will boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, that you will strengthen Pastor Roy and his family. Pray that uh, the core uh, leadership there will do a mighty work, not for their own uh, glory, but Father, it's all to yours. Lord, we pray for Pastor Vijay, our brother Vijay, and his wife Abigail and their son Souvenay, pray that uh, you'll be with them and their ministry of Reach All Nations. Lord, uh, thank you for using VJ in such a way as to bring training to brothers who have been called to, to shepherd your people. And Lord, many of them don't even own a Bible, and you have raised up men like VJ to give your word and then to train them to preach it rightly in, in the whole counsel of God. Father, I pray that you'll bless that ministry and you'll bless Vijay in his effort and help him to remain faithful to the calling that you've given them. Strengthen his family. Pray that they will rest in you and their strength will come not from their effort or their work, but from your grace that's new every morning. Lord, we pray for Pastor Tom, Covenant Community Church, and Pastor Bobby, Foundation Church. Lord, we pray for North Stafford Baptist Church and Stafford Baptist Church. Lord, we pray that you will be with these sister churches and that you will strengthen them together with us and other gospel-believing churches that we will be a light to the community around us here, that more will be brought into the kingdom, not because of how good or how great of a church we are, but because your grace is being sought after, that your love is being adored in worship, that you are being seen, that we, your instruments, are being used so that others will come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, that's our prayer for the Pashtun in northern Afghanistan. Lord, over 12 million people trapped in the false religion of Islam. Lord, it seems every week we are praying for a new group of people who have been trapped and deceived by this wicked religion. Father, a religion that says you can achieve a status with the Holy God, that you can work your way into his good graces. Father, I pray that you'll break the chains of that false religion. I pray that you will open the eyes of the Pashtun and you'll raise up brothers among them, the strong churches will be planted, that you'll send forth men and women who are willing to share the gospel and that they will hear by your grace. Lord, that's my prayer for this fellowship.
Lord, I do not even begin to assume that all of us know what grace is really for, what it really is, and our desperate need of your mercy and your grace. Father, I pray that you will do a work with us today. It's in your name. Amen. Uh, it was not a typo in your bulletin that we are looking at the first chapter of Nehemiah. That is on purpose. We are still in the book of Nehemiah. Although last week we did begin, we walked through Nehemiah's prayer. You'll remember that Nehemiah humbly prayed to God after hearing the shameful condition of the Jewish people who had returned from exile, and Nehemiah received news that the walls around Jerusalem still laid in ruin. I didn't spend a lot of time looking at what brought Israel to such a low position here. We looked instead at Nehemiah's prayer because it's important. His prayer is important. It's a model for us to help us as we pray to God. But it's worth spending time before we move on to chapter 2 at looking and to see how Israel came to such a broken state. When Nehemiah heard the news, we read for the second time that he mourned. He was grieving and looking at what such a broken and low state that his people were. The people of God had become so low. And there's reason for that condition. You and I need to be watchful of the reason why Israel was brought so low into such a broken state. The Jews saw Jerusalem as their great monument for being God's people. It was the great city on the hill that the Jews looked to and said, that is our city. God has given us this great city of Jerusalem. It was the capital of Israel before the exile, but now it was a mess. It laid in ruin. The city and the temple was the place where God had chosen to put his name. His presence was there to be worshipped by the people and the nations outside of Israel were supposed to look into Israel and look at Jerusalem and the temple and know that the true God was there. But the nations had laid waste to the land. God had used the people who were to look to the Jews and turn to God. God used those very people to judge his own people. The golden years of King David's reign, when Israel was a strong, mighty nation, it was now just a memory. We need to see how Israel goes from the chosen people of God who are given the promised land and they're built into the kingdom of Israel to now in Nehemiah's day, it's it's just lying in ruin and the people are in exile. About a thousand years after God called Abraham and made a covenant with him to make Israel a great nation, around the year 1050 BC, Israel had become, in fact, a mighty nation under Saul and David. 
and then Solomon and King David's reign, specifically King David, his reign was iconic. It was the reign. It was the kingship that the people said, yes, God has fulfilled what he promised with Israel. But Solomon, David's son, began to disobey God's word. And he was committing idolatry. First Kings 11 tells us that his heart was turned away after other gods. His heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Think about that. You go from in one generation, King David's day, the, the covenant of God seeming to be completely fulfilled, and this is what God's been talking about to the very next generation completely falling away from God. In one generation, Israel went from God's people in covenant with him to being an idolatrous people. We are always one generation away from the worship of God to the rejection of God. That's the harsh reality in which we live. David was not perfect by any means, if you know about his life, but he was a man after God's own heart. And Solomon, he may have been wise, and it says the wisest man when he began as king, but in the end, he allowed his wives to pull him away from God. And this is not just an Old Testament problem. The church is always one generation away from apostasy. The next generation must be taught God's word and have a heart for God or else the church will die. The younger generation must learn of God's supreme glory, his holiness and his word and the deep seriousness of sin. Parents, we need to take this Seriously, if our children are not taught the good doctrines of our faith, they will surely perish. No one just gets it. No one just absorbs what's being told simply by osmosis or just being there. They must be told. They must be taught and reminded. We must take the time as parents to teach our kids And give them the anchors of truth that will hold them when the fierce winds of the enemy and their own doubt tries to shake them loose. In his article entitled, It Only Takes One Generation for the Church to Die, Justin Taylor quotes Don Carson who lays out what can happen in just three generations. The first generation cherishes the gospel and are thankful for the blessings from it. Unless that remains the focus, the next generation assumes the gospel and emphasizes the benefits of it. They assume they know the gospel and they really want what comes with it. That leads to the third generation who end up denying the gospel, but the benefits of it become everything. They don't see the need for the gospel and the benefits of it are found elsewhere. We should not assume 
that just because our kids sit with us in service or our neighbor or friends or your spouse or this other person who's sitting next to you, we cannot assume that just because a person calls themselves a Christian or they go to church that they're followers of Jesus Christ. If they do not have personal communion with Him and they are ignorant of His ways, they are not Christian. They can be religious. They can be nice. They can know a lot about the Bible even. But... Being religious, nice Bible thumpers, even those kind of people, religious, nice Bible thumpers will go to hell if they do not trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ and submit to his ways. Belief in God must be at the top of everything in our church, in our families, and in our own lives. And unless gospel grace penetrates the heart Rejection of God and denial of needing Christ becomes the dominant illusion in the generation. Don Carson thinks that we right now are in the second generation of assuming the gospel. There are a number of people who have been raised in church and just simply being a part of church, they assume that they're, that they're Christian. So many have grown up and they assume that they're good because they know about the gospel, but they don't really believe it. And I hope that I'm not talking about you. They just want what comes with the gospel. That's where their focus really is. You don't have to go far to see this. There are a lot of people in the church who think that they are basically good, that people in general are basically good. And you'll hear comments, oh, those are good kids, or those are are good people. Others come to church not to hear about the gospel and to believe in Jesus. They come to feel better about themselves. You don't come to church to hear how good you are or to feel better about you. In a gospel-proclaiming church, in this church, in Redeemer Church, as long as I'm given the privilege to give you God's Word, you will learn how desperately wicked you and I really are and how good God is. God says there's no one good. There's no one who seeks righteousness. There is only one, and He died for the sinner. He died for you. Not that long ago, I was serving at a church that was doing VBS. The pastor at the time wanted the people to experience Bible times as an adventure. This particular year was about the Israelites in the wilderness. We were in the planning phase and it came my turn to describe what I was going to do with my students. And I said, rather than taking them through a theme park experience... I was telling them why the Israelites were in the wilderness in the first place. They sinned against God. You see, the wilderness is not some happy adventure. It was punishment by a holy, righteous God. People need to know about sin and the punishment of it and the grace that God gives through faith in Jesus Christ. I was asked if I thought people already knew that in the church, and I said no. 
We can ever, we cannot ever assume that people in the church are aware of their sin. They need to believe in God for the forgiveness of their sin. And God forgives through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel message. Anything else we give people is leading them toward idolatry and denial of needing the gospel. Israel had become idolatrous because they forgot their God, and we can too. Because of the sin and idolatry, the kingdom of Israel is eventually divided in 931 B.C. into two countries. Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom, where Jerusalem was. In 722, the northern kingdom of Israel fell. It was conquered and taken over by the Assyrians. Judah, the southern kingdom, held on until 586 when Babylon, under Nebuchadnezzar, conquers it. They destroy the walls of Jerusalem and the temple, and they take the rest of the treasures in the temple, and they take the people into captivity. Jerusalem and all that is signified for God's people was leveled to the ground. Now, this is not the destruction that Nehemiah hears about in chapter 1. This is the destruction when the Jews were first taken into exile. Listen to what the chronicler wrote in 2 Chronicles 36, beginning in verse 19. And they burned the house of God and broke the wall of Jerusalem down and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. The result of sin is devastating. It always is. No one can escape the consequences of sin. God had warned the people to follow his ways, to honor him, to worship only him, not to put anything or anyone in place of him. Yet in their sin, they turned away. Their hearts were full of idolatry. Other gods replaced the one true God. And this is what happens when people do not heed God's word. When they do not obey what he says. Our sin, our own sin, we can't blame anybody else. Our own sin causes us to turn away from him. Our hearts become idolatrous. And the consequences are terrible. Now you may say this, this is not you, that you, you don't worship idols. But an idol is anything that replaces God in your heart or causes you to overlook God. It can be anything. That can be relationships. You putting a person before what God says in their word. It is whatever you desire the most other than God. And that's an idol. I keep a paper in the front of my book. It's good to keep notes in your Bible or keep a notebook. That way you can always go back and and refer to these notes that that help you to understand and, and to follow. 
I have notes I took when I read Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, and I highly, highly recommend that book. Here's what I wrote from, from Keller's book. If sin isn't stressed as the problem that we all have, I add in my notes. If sin isn't stressed as the problem that we all have, the gospel becomes a way to meet needs in your life. And we know that is not true. God tells us in the Bible that we are sinful. That we need Jesus to save us from our sin. Oh, do we all need to hear this? We all need to hear that our own sin is the problem. And we are sinful and we need Jesus to save us from it. Keller talks of our hearts being idol-making factories, turning good things that God gives into the ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. And this is what happened to Israel. And it can happen to any of us. God's people are carried away into a foreign land and they're ruled by a foreign king. The psalmist says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept. Sin and idolatry never fully satisfy. They never satisfy. Immediate gratification in the flesh brings destruction, division, and pain. But through the years of exile, God's people held on to the promise of God that there would be eventually restoration to the people and to the land. In 539, Babylon falls to the Persians under King Cyrus. The chronicler continues in 2 Chronicles 36.22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it into writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. God stirred the heart of a pagan king in order to fulfill his word to his people. In the book of Ezra, we learn the Jews began to return from exile in three waves. The return started and rebuilding of Jerusalem began. The first wave returns in 538, led by Zerubbabel and Jeshua. The temple is completed after the work was halted a little bit because of the surrounding pressure of the people in the, in the neighboring lands. Ezra is in the second wave about 50 years later, and the pressure halts the building again of the city and its walls. God uses Ezra to bring the word to his people once again. He's beginning the restoration. Nehemiah is in the third wave of the returnees about 13 years after Ezra arrives in 445. You move forward to Ezra chapter 4, and we learn of Artaxerxes, the Persian king in Nehemiah's day. He has again stopped the work of rebuilding so he could consider if it was good for Persia to have Jerusalem rebuilt. 
Rebuilding the temple wasn't a big deal to Persia. It could actually appease the people and help keep the empire intact. But building walls? For what? Defend against the Persians in a rebellion? I mean, you can see Artaxerxes going through this and thinking about about his, his empire. God's people were at the mercy of a pagan king, of someone else making the decision if it was good or not. And he didn't have the Jews in mind. It was based on how this foreign king saw things. The work has begun and it has stopped on several occasions. In some respects, this was worse than when the Jews first went into exile. They returned, they hoped that this would finally happen, and it did happen. The restoration, they thought, was beginning, but progress was halted, and the future was unsure. You see, without restoration of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of its walls, there would be no return of Israel, the nation. This meant no Messiah that God had promised. The return and the rebuilding are more than the securing of a city. I said last week that the book of Nehemiah is more than about the building of walls. It's the preservation of God's people and the renewal that he has promised. There can be no renewal if there's no Savior who will liberate God's people. And that won't happen if Israel is not rebuilt. At this point of God's plan of redemption, the Jewish nation has to be restored. The people must return to their roots, and Jerusalem has to be defended with its walls to protect the people. Because the Messiah is promised to come from the Israelite nation, the rebuilding must come so the Messiah could come. Artaxerxes has stopped the work and the surrounding people have made sure the the walls lie in ruin. And now we come to the first part of Nehemiah 1. Nehemiah is in Susa. It's a fortress that it was kind of like a winter resort for the Persian kings. It's about 225 miles east of Babylon. Its location today is east of the Tigris River in the country of Iran. So you can imagine the distance from Jerusalem, the city, to Iran. Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king, and this is an influential position in Persia. It involved regular access to the king, and just as the title implies, he ensured that the king's cup was free from poison. Something kings in that day feared most was having their food or their drink poisoned. Attempts on the king's life happened regularly all throughout history, and poison was a sneaky way to get to the king to to kill him. The position of a cupbearer was thus an honorable position. It was a position that protected the king. You had to be someone very close to the king. It was given to a person who had unquestionable loyalty and who could be absolutely trusted with the life of the king. And therefore, the cupbearer had lots of influence. He tasted the wine, but he was also an advisor, a chief supporter, kind of like someone we would think of today, like a member of the president's administration. 
We don't know how Nehemiah came to be the cupbearer, but the fact that a Jew was the king's cupbearer doesn't seem normal, does it? It says something to how the Jews responded in their exile. There are few times when a group would revolt, but for the most part, the Jews, just like the early church in the New Testament, the Jews in Persia were subject to the governing authorities. It also says something to the personal character of Nehemiah. As a king's cupbearer, he was one of the most honorable and prominent Jews in the Persian Empire. Don't you see God's providence here? God has judged the people. He has taken them away into exile through the foreign nations. They are sitting in exile. They are lamenting like we heard earlier. They are crying out to God. They know that their own sin has brought this judgment and they're wondering, will God fulfill his promise? And all along, as God sent them into exile, he was establishing not only Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, He then took the Persians who took over Babylon. He had this king who ruled over all these lands and he brought this Jew into the presence of that king in order to to fulfill something that we're going to see. God's providence is all over this, even in exile. God had raised Nehemiah up just for this way just for this time, so he could influence the king and accomplish what God would have him to do. Later, we're going to see the cupbearer become the builder and the builder become governor. Right now, what we see in Nehemiah is Christ's likeness in Nehemiah's character. He's upright, he's honorable, he's trustworthy. The temptations of the Persian court, a pagan, a religious pagan court, are not influencing him. He's influencing the court. He has the king's ear. And God uses men like this to accomplish his will. He's here at Susa. Nehemiah asks his brother, Hanani, about the Jews who returned in the state of Jerusalem. In that question... This is just in, in, what is it, verse 1, verse 2? Let's look at that again. It's verse 2. In verse 1, we're introduced to Nehemiah, and then in verse 2, Nehemiah asks concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. Isn't that great encouragement? Knowing that there are people who look at life beyond themselves and beyond their own circumstances. Here was Nehemiah in the king's court. He was living, he had to have been living a posh life, a very comfortable life in the presence of the king. The the effects of exile were not brought upon him personally. It actually had brought him honor and a, a high position. But that wasn't where Nehemiah was. He he is concerned about the Jews and the state of Jerusalem. He was truly interested in how his fellow Jews were. Every Christian ought to be like that. 
We should be asking how each other's doing and really mean it. We should, we should have deep concern for our brothers and sisters in Christ, both here and abroad. Just because it may be going well here doesn't mean it's going well for brothers and sisters in, in other countries. We have brothers and sisters all over the world who are suffering for the kingdom. They are being persecuted for Christ. We need to be thinking of them and thinking of ways to help them. Nehemiah was not stuck in his own world. He, he wasn't all about himself or his immediate family. His brethren were the people of God. And that is who we need to include as well. Upon hearing the sad news of how things are, Nehemiah sits down and weeps and mourns for days. Many of us can relate to that kind of grief. We can identify with Nehemiah here. This, this kind of grief shakes us to our core. It's, it's like something's been undone within us. We can identify with Nehemiah here. But Nehemiah not only mourned, look at what he does next. He fasted and he prayed. And you'll remember last week, between the months of chapter 1 and chapter 2, we know that in those months, it was about six months. It was a long time that Nehemiah then prayed and he fasted. How does Nehemiah respond to the devastation? He grieves. That's okay. That shows us it's okay to mourn and to grieve. It's good and right to mourn the loss. Nehemiah's heart is burdened. He's beyond depressed. He's in agony. But to stay there is a form of unbelief in God. How do you respond to bad news? How do you take the devastation and grief? This kind of situation always does one of two things. It either opens our eyes to God. He comes into full view and we are able to cry out to a God who's there for us. Or we question him and we blame him. How do you relate to God? Do you get angry? Do you blame him? Do you question his sovereignty and his goodness? These types of situations reveal our own hearts before God. We either respond in faith or we act as if we are independent of God and his ways. Although there is pain, you know that God is good and empowering you to trust him and, and to hold on. Or you have no hope, although God's word gives us hope. You question God, although he is in control. You think God doesn't care, although God says to put all your anxiety, all your cares on him because he cares for you. Nehemiah did what we all should do in his grief, in his mourning. He turned to God. Although sin had brought utter ruin and devastation, Nehemiah trusted God in his promise to restore. Nehemiah doesn't know how God will do it, but he humbly asks God through fasting and, and through prayer to fulfill what God says he will do. 
And Nehemiah trusts that God will do it. He says, remember your word that you commanded. He's turning to his own words for hope. This cupbearer who God had placed in the presence of the king hears devastating news that causes him to grieve. He knows that sin has brought it all about and he prays to God to remember his word and to act on it. Nehemiah's hope is in God. Nehemiah rested in the fact that God is faithful to his word. Nehemiah didn't panic. He remembers how infinitely great and good God is. And that turned to confession, which led to petition, asking God to work in him and in the people. Nehemiah had confidence that even though the people's sin was very great, God is greater. And when God gives his word, nothing will stop it from being fulfilled. This same confidence and hope is given to every believer in Jesus Christ. We sang it earlier when we sang before the throne. Could I have a a hymnal, please? If you want to turn there with me, that's fine. Otherwise, just, just listen along to hymn number 187, Before the Throne of God Above. This is for every believer in Jesus Christ. In verse 2, it says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of all the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on Christ and pardon me. God is greater than your sin. God is greater than your guilt. God is greater than the despair and the grief that you may be experiencing. That is the truth that God gives us. Nehemiah had confidence that even though the people's sin was great, God is greater. And when God gives his word, nothing will stop him from fulfilling his word. God says, I will love you for everlasting to everlasting, and nothing will stop that. God says, I will care for you, and he will never stop. Because what Nehemiah hoped for was fulfilled, When Christ went to the cross and died for the sacrifice for sin, the same confidence that Nehemiah has, we have. Nehemiah looked to God in order for God to fulfill his word. And we know that God has fulfilled his word in Christ. Christ atoned for every sin of God's people and God accepted him and said, no more sacrifice is needed because my son has fulfilled it. His blood washes away the sin of all who believe in him and are forgiven and made new. I will care for my people. I will bring them to myself forever. Nehemiah's confidence in God led to patience. Nehemiah prayed for several months, and in that prayer, he's confronted his sin and he's confessed it. You see, the real reason why the Jews were in exile was them. It was themselves. 
And that included Nehemiah. You see, the real reason why the Jews were in exile, it was them, and they were the cause of their problem. That is what our sin does to us. Now, we may not be the immediate reason of why we find ourselves in situations in which we find ourselves, but we are part of a fallen world. Nehemiah acknowledges his own sin and the people's sin. And in his prayer, Nehemiah experiences a renewal in his heart. Even in this fallen world, even at times when when you say, I have followed everything that God has said, and you find yourself in this situation and conditions, you said, I haven't done anything for this. God says, I will renew your heart. Hope in me. Trust in me. When we go to God like Nehemiah did and we are honest before God in brokenness and repentance, we experience God's mercy and we have a renewal. We are renewed. And that renewal is like His Son, Jesus Christ. Followers of Jesus Christ are being made new every day. God takes us through experiences sometimes so that that will take place. Hope in God. He gets our hearts right. In verse 6 and again in verse 10, Nehemiah is praying for the people, not only in his own sin and confessing sin, he is praying a prayer of intercession for, for the people. And this is what Christ does for us. Nehemiah points to Christ's intercession for us. The Hebrews writer tells us that. Trust in the work that Christ did on the cross and the intercession that He does for you, Paul says in Romans. Because of Jesus... You and I can go to God with our sin in these situations we find ourselves and receive mercy. And we can be forgiven and made new. Our hope is in Christ, not in the situation changing, not in things getting better, but in Christ who is better, who is love, who personifies what God's mercy and grace is. His grace truly is sufficient in Christ. Our hope is in Christ who redeems us and who intercedes for us. Let's pray.